Hi, and welcome um, to Inquiring Minds. This is the Writing Literacy Special Interest SIG um, with the American Educational Research Association. My name is Leslie Knoll, and I'm talking with a wonderful group of scholars today. I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Laura Kelly, with the Assistant Professor of Elementary Literacy at Rhodes College, Dr. Len Canetzo, Assistant Professor of Teacher Education at Brigham Young University, and Dr. Megan Walsh, Assistant Professor of Special Education at, um, at Western Michigan University. So thank you everyone for being here with us today. Nice to meet everybody. Um, I'd like to start off by hearing a little bit more about you um, through an introduction, maybe tell us about your work um, and in and around informational text. Uh, Megan, would you like to start? Sure. Yeah, sure. So um, I was a special ed teacher for six years um, before going to Vanderbilt, where I worked on our research team. We were working on the development of nonfiction comprehension intervention for students um, at risk for significant reading difficulties. Um, and so we worked on developing a comprehensive program for use with students in grades um, three through five. It ended up being two programs, a third grade program and a fourth and fifth grade program. Um, but more generally, I'm interested in just how we improve outcomes for students with and at risk for significant reading difficulties or math difficulties, really any academic difficulty, and then how we get those into schools. Um, so I'm really just interested in how do we figure out to get better tools in the hands of teachers in terms of the specific intervention packages that we can provide them that are empirically tested and validated. Um, and then, you know, how do we build systems within the schools that can support those uh, interventions that we design? Thank you. We'll just go around, uh, Laura. <laughs> okay. Um, I also was a teacher before becoming a researcher and a professor, and among other things, I think I became a teacher because I love reading books with children, and I came to informational text a little bit by accident because for my dissertation study, I was studying text difficulty, and I thought that it would be easier to not have so many moving parts as there are in a narrative and also not have, you know, if you read a text about like children in a bike race, some kids in your group might have done that before and some kids might not have done it before. And so the their different experiences contribute to how well they understand it. But I thought if we were working with non um, with informational text, a text about like animal feet or something wasn't going to be um so resonant with some kids and not with others. So I thought it would be a good way to kind of control for the differences that they might have with the with the topic. Um, and then I've also studied informational text a little bit because I have studied um, and done a research project around how science trade books represent the nature of science. Um, and so I've studied that as well. Thank you. Uh, Lynn. Um, well, uh, I also was a teacher. I taught kindergarten for nine years, and I remember when I was teaching that young children tended to gravitate towards the informational texts. Um, those were the ones that they wanted, you know, to see and um, to interact and experience. Um, and so I had that kind of 
in my mind. And then uh, during my uh, graduate work, I was learning a lot about different genres of text and um, informational text really spoke to me because it's the text that you can find in any home and it's the text that we use in our everyday lives. And so um, I have done a lot of work with informational texts um, and young children um, emergent readings and writings of informational texts, both uh, domestically and abroad. So that's kind of how I got into this <laughs> as well. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to continue our conversation by asking you, um, well, you've kind of answered that, what brought you to literacy and um, as an educational researcher. So it really comes for a majority of us from coming from the classroom, really from being classroom teachers. Um, so I think it's probably in line to ask, um, so each of you have, we've come here in very similar ways, actually, um, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are um, about how research suggests that we can improve reading comprehension with the goal of growing lifelong learners, which is ultimately what we want to do, um, and also of importance, you know, obviously is passing standardized testing in this, in this climate that we live in. Um, and even though we have research, you know, over two decades that um, suggests, you know, we know what does work and what doesn't work. And sometimes we don't know how it works altogether or which pieces are more effective than others. But um, in terms of the fact that standardized scores are continue, continuously below level for our elementary, middle, high school, um, maybe even any thoughts you have around that. So short term, you know, these testing mm -hmm. situations and long term, you know, lifelong lovers of reading and successful readers. I, I'm really fascinated um, that both of you kind of saw young children gravitating towards and um, that almost finding, from what I heard, um, nonfiction text simpler, because um, I had the exact opposite experience working with students um, experiencing reading difficulty, I mean, primarily in special ed classrooms, but um, it was really like, you found that there were some students for whom comprehension was a significant um, need and it was not being addressed at all. Um, and it, the tools that we had were inadequate for it. Um, and then the further I went into that, the more I realized that nonfiction text was really difficult. Um, and then what we found as we tried over, you know, six years with thousands and thousands of students going through our program to support background knowledge in different types of nonfiction text is that it was really tricky. Um, I developed media libraries that went with each text because I found that the, um, the places that they had gaps were really all over the maps. Like it wasn't as much, it wasn't as simple as did they, or did they not experience that? It was, do they know about this? Do they know about this? The vocabulary terms, the math terms, the, there were just so many different components. Um, so I found that fascinating that um, coming from that, that different, that different side, that's really interesting to hear about. Well, I think some of this comes from that misconception that is still very prevalent in early childhood, that narrative is just more natural for young children. Um, and But we know that we connect anything new to what is known, um, and we know that young children have innate curiosities, right? When we're around young children, they're asking us, a zillion questions. And so we need to capitalize on that and informational text allows us to do that. So we can uh, meet them with what they know and then we can build on 
um, the new um, to to that. So I think that there is is something there that is a missed opportunity that a lot of times with young children, we're like, okay, let's read this book about a bear that goes shopping rather than this book about the grocery store and the things that are in the grocery store. Um, and so I think that that uh, going back to the question of comprehension is one of the main things is that we need to destigmatize that and clear up that misconception. And we also need to start early um, because we don't want a third or fourth grader to be handed a procedural text to do a science experiment and it's the first one they've ever seen, right? So if they have had exposure and experience that's meaningful um, to informational text before that, we know research has told us that, you know, they're going to be more successful, but the, the trick is just providing that um, and creating those those moments. Um, and I, I know a big turning point for me uh, when thinking about informational text, I was at a conference session. I don't even remember what conference it was. And they were talking about, oh, we're going to send these books to Africa. And I do a lot of my work in Southern Africa. And I looked at the book list that they were sending and it was old basal readers and, um, <laughs> like old narrative texts, nothing that was relevant to the children's lives. It was books about, you know, sledding and for kids that never have experienced snow. And so that was something that, that also brought me to my work. I do a lot with thinking about culturally informed informational texts um, and, and fitting those to children. So I think I think that those are some of the things that if we start early um, and we're thinking about our students and their lived experiences and building on those with the known to the new, I think that will help us in this uh, trajectory with comprehension and writing. Um, I don't know, Laura, I'm sure you have to add on to that. <laughs> so. Sure, yeah, I really love the idea of children's Yay. natural curiosity. Um, this is something that's really impacted my thinking about informational text is having a child and answering questions all day long. And they're usually the kinds of questions that if they were going to be answered by a text, it would be answered by an informational text. And children want to know and understand about their world. And so to the question of, you know, what can we do to motivate kids and make them lifelong readers, I think we have to support that curiosity and support it ideally in schools, like through inquiry projects and providing them access to books where they can explore all these things that they're interested in. Um, I'm in Tennessee, so I would certainly say that supporting this kind of lifelong informational text reading does not mean banning books and shutting down classroom and school libraries. Um, that's not gonna help. Um, I think something else that isn't helping is that a lot of the students in our local district, when they encounter informational text, they're encountering an excerpt in a workbook. And it doesn't, it's not 
a piece of work by a recognizable author. It doesn't have thematic coherence across the curriculum. It's like today we're going to read these three paragraphs about a hummingbird and answer four multiple choice questions. And tomorrow we'll read two paragraphs about a sailboat and look at this diagram of a sailboat. And it's really not shocking at all why kids don't want to read informational text if that's what they think it is. Um, so I think that's a problem that we know how to fix that we're choosing not to fix because we have wrong ideas about what's going to bring up test scores. Um, also, we know that reading and writing should be a core part of science and social studies. But uh, Megan was talking about building these libraries with all these additional text to help kids build the knowledge in order to understand the focal text. But instead of having reading and writing as a core part of science and social studies, we're not teaching science and social studies at all, let alone with reading and writing embedded. So when kids do encounter an informational text, they may not have the background knowledge to understand it because they've just gone five years of school and not had a science science class. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it harder to understand these complex ideas in the natural and social sciences, because nobody is teaching these things. Mm -hmm. um, I also, I think this is, I think all no excuse to not do them. But I do think it's important to acknowledge that we know there's a whole host of factors that affect test scores that have nothing to do with instruction. And as long as we're living in an unequal society that has decided that it's fine for kids to live in poverty and it's fine for kids to have vastly different levels of safety and security in the world, their test scores are not going to all be the same. And it's not entirely because of the reading curriculum they're exposed to. It's because out of school factors and economic injustice matter a lot too. I would um, echo some of those things, certainly um, in my own thinking about what works, I kind of tried to come up with a list and certainly those things um, resonate with a lot of the things I thought about. Um, one thing I, I will say is that um, what I've found is that for some students expecting that this is a natural process that if it if they're only exposed to more text that this will come on, come on for every learner i do believe that we have done a disservice by um not acknowledging the fact that comprehension disabilities do exist um we have focused a lot on word reading disabilities and we should um but that i do truly believe that there are comprehension disabilities that that need support and i do think there are things that we as teachers and i think you guys both brought up several of them can certainly do to improve our performance. Um, I definitely think when we look across classrooms where reading instruction is occurring, way too much use of the KWL chart pre-reading, where all we do is plan for and prepare for reading and make predictions, which don't make sense when reading a nonfiction text because it's inf new information I'm about to learn. What, what am I supposed to predict about this? Um, but we are like really front loaded on that. Instead of spending time in high quality text, which you both alluded to, it's the type of text written at an appropriate level for students so that they can access it themselves, not just listen to it being read aloud by an adult, but they're also designed to foster deep comprehension to allow for inference making, to allow students to do the work of comprehension. And like you said, Laura, organized and thematic units is really important so that we're building knowledge in a systematic and scaffolded way 
definitely connecting to our content area courses so that we can do that in a better way. Um, and then uh, as you um, mentioned as well, uh, Lynn, I definitely think we have to make sure it aligns to student interests and identities and that those are embedded throughout everything we do and so that it taps into those natural curiosities that you both mentioned. Um, beyond that, when it comes to intervening for students when it's not working, I definitely think we have to specifically teach them about text structures in a very systematic way um, so that they can start to recognize the different structures of nonfiction text. It's not as simple as narrative versus informational. Within informational, there's many, many different genres and there's many different structures. And often we use mixed structures when we write them. And until they can start to hang their ha hats on those things, I think for students with, who are experiencing difficulty and who have disabilities, structure is really important. So I think using structure and talking about structure and using tools to help them utilize that is really important to help them build mental models um, of the text that they're reading. I also think that we need to do a better job when we train teachers in explaining that there's a difference between an activity that you do when you've read a text and a comprehension strategy, which is what your brain did while you read, the process that your brain engaged in. And there has been kind of a disservice in the field done and kind of an anti-explicit strategy instruction, which I don't think is the end-all be-all and isn't going to get us far enough. But what is true is that when we read, there is a process that happens in our brain. Our brain is working very hard. Um, and what we need to make is we need to raise the iceberg and make the invisible visible to our students who are struggling. And in order to do that, we have to call attention to the types of connections we make. And I'm not just talking about to background knowledge, but specifically within like anaphora resolution, connecting different connectives in the text, drawing connections between this paragraph and that paragraph and helping students recognize how to do that, when to do that on their own um, so that they can apply it when they read other places. And so that they can apply this text structure strategy whenever they encounter a problem in solution text or a compare and contrast text. They need to learn how to, to recognize these keys and then know, okay, oh, I'm looking for the solution now. I identify the problem, I look for a solution. Um, I think all of that is is benefited when we have students write. As you guys all mentioned, like the more we write, the more students will read and they go together. And so I think we need to reserve space for time in text and time writing. Um, less time spent pre-reading, less time. I mean, read-alouds are fantastic with our early learners, of course, and I'm not in any way saying no to read-alouds, but once they're in fourth grade and they're able to independently read text, they need time to do that and practice the strategy on their own to move from the listening comp to the reading comp. Um, and so I think that that's a really big, important uh, a piece of all of this. Yeah, I love that um, what you're reminding um, all of us that it, are that informational text is not monolithic and that the research tells us that explicit instruction is um, effective, but that doesn't mean it has to be scripted <laughs> like Laura was referring to, right? And that um, strategies are part of comprehension. They're not the end all be all, like you said, but we do need to make that that invisible visible and, um, and we, I, I do think it is important for us to think about how we can help and support teachers to do that. Um, because, you know, a lot of teachers and students can do, you know, talk about plotting out a narrative structure, but can they talk about informational text structures? Um, and 
do they feel so comfortable about doing that? And so we need to make sure that we're supporting that. So I'm, I'm grateful that you made that, um, talked about that and mentioned that because I think it's really important for us to think about moving forward. That made me think of one other thing, Lynn, is that I, I do think that we know explicit instruction, strategy instruction at least has like statistically significant effects. And those facts are fairly consistent across time, but they're not big enough. We don't know enough about comprehension instruction. Um, and I think that that for me is the most important takeaway is that we have to keep pushing ourselves to advance and move beyond our status quo paradigms of how to do this correctly um, because our standard models aren't translating as you, as you mentioned to effects. Like we're just not seeing the outcomes that we would hope to see. And I don't even know if our standardized tests are even capturing the true effects, right? Because we can only ever see the artifact of comprehension. We're never seeing the real process underneath it until we can figure out a way to capture that. I don't know that we're ever going to know for sure what works best for comprehension, but we have to figure out a better way. And while we're at it, we have to figure out a way to progress monitor comprehension because we don't have that at all right now. So when we intervene and we support this, we're moving, we're, we're operating blind often based on the conversations we hear, what's happening. But for those students who talk less, who are, who maybe don't have the writing skills to express some of the things that they do, we don't always know what's happening under the surface. And so there is a huge gap um, in our research knowledge related to comprehension and comprehension and nonfiction text. And, and so I'm so gratified to see uh, Laura and Lynn, two people working in this field, doing this work because um, there needs to be so much more done. And then we need to figure out how to assess our students better so that our instructional um, methods can match and can get there. Cause we're so much better at word reading <laughs> than we are. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say we're better at teaching word reading. We know a lot more about how we should be doing it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I Go ahead. Um, building on some of the things that you all mentioned about teacher education, um, you talked about how it's important for teachers to be, you know, aware of how important informational text is and strategies for teaching it. Um, I mentioned when we started that I became a teacher in part because I like reading books with children, and I think a lot of early childhood people are the same way. And when you ask, for example, like a third year um group of college students in the college of ed to like recall their favorite literacy experiences as children or like what their favorite books were they never mention informational text and when they can choose read alouds they do pick I, I think it was Lynn that mentioned like the bear that goes shopping and things like that like they do pick the narratives and um you know a lot of times these are the books that are award-winning and make a big splash in the field of children's literature but it's really important for us in teacher education to expose future teachers to well, more than exposure, but like direct instruction about there are so many great informational texts and yeah. here are 50 and here's how you can keep finding them every year for the rest of your career. Um, and, you know, I've learned that my child likes listening to informational text in a way that I wouldn't have predicted because I kind of had some of what Lynn shared was the about um, students wanting to, you know, only hear narratives because they're more fun or some kind of misconception about what kids think about information. Um, and 
Related to all of this, informational texts are about something, like they contain information, that is why they're called informational. And a lot of times that information is complex. And a lot of times for elementary teachers in particular, it might be about a topic that they don't really know much about that topic. And it's very easy when you work with elementary students to be like, oh, it's an elementary text, it's fine, I'll just go in there and read it and like, play it by ear and like the lesson will unfold and like it's a book about gravity how hard could it be um but like gravity is this super complex physics so concept like so most hard you gotta show a video of that yeah most people don't actually like. understand it and so I think that it's important for teachers and future teachers to understand how complex the books are how much they need to read and understand them in advance before they start working with kids because if you haven't figured out what comprehension strategies are needed for this text that's perhaps more complex than you realized, then it's going to be hard for you to help kids draw on those comprehension strategies as well. Um, a lot of informational texts have like notes from the author or a letter to the teacher, or a letter to parents at the end. And I think if grad students are listening to this, it would be a cool research question for someone to explore how teachers and or parents use that material and how it could help them read slash teach the books better with kids. I love that. I think, Laura, when you talked about gravity, it made me laugh because we developed these text sets, right? So they were supposed to be written at either a third grade or a fourth, you know, like a fourth and fifth grade level. So there were two sets of texts. And I mean, every year we spent, and by we, I mean, mostly, mostly me, like just, I mean, re trying to get the leveling correct to address all the potential issues. And what we found is that some things like gravity were specifically complicated for third grade readers and required you watching a video of someone in the International Space Station with their hair flying up like this to understand what we were talking about um, and seeing the little drops of water floating around. Um, molecules, almost impossible to define. Um, at a third grade level, easy as pie to describe, to define for fifth graders. Like there was just this really interesting component of developing these texts and it's complex, it's difficult, and it, it deserves a lot more attention. I think we, um, as researchers need to do a better job defining and describing our process for developing texts. Um, and all the different things we identify and that come up as we use them with children, because, I think teachers may not know that that's happening. Like they may not know what things to look for that would, would show them. We had a civil rights unit that worked really well with our fourth and fifth grade students, but our third grade students really struggled um, because they weren't at a place yet to talk about some of the things that we assumed that they were ready to talk about. And their um, awareness of global events um, was not the same as the awareness of fourth and fifth graders in terms of like, what's on the news? What are my parents listening to? They just weren't at the same spot. And so we really had to change that from a thematic aspect, not because we don't want to teach them about civil rights, but we need to do it in a developmentally appropriate way. And the what we're ready for when is not as clearly laid out yet in terms of knowing, okay, they're ready to talk about this yet. They're ready to talk about this. And so I think we need to do a lot of research here. And I, I encourage anyone listening to, you know, can continue this, like keep going, keep going. There's so much to be learned in terms of what happens when, um, and what's the most impactful thing to talk about for students and what are they going to care about? What do they want to learn about at each stage of development? I think that's really important. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of them have uh, a lot of students and teachers have this conception that informational texts are just like you open it up and there's all these facts, right? And they don't think about the engagement factors. They don't think about some of these other things. And I know for my dissertation, I went and lived in Botswana in Southern Africa, and I developed text sets on informational text topics that were relevant to the students. And I remember when I first started the task of creating these texts, um, thinking about, okay, these are the facts that I have to include. But then you also have to think about how do I engage with my readers and then, um, you know, how accessible it is, what kind of background knowledge they need, right? All of these other kinds of things. So it is a lot more complicated than just a list of facts. And I find I do a lot of work with teaching informational writing. And with that, it seems a lot that the tasks seem to be like, okay, pick an animal and list like three facts about it, right? Not thinking about how complicated it is and that there it's more than just facts and there are other pieces to it um that that make it engaging and make students want to read it and make teachers want to read it right and so and to do the activities so I think that um it is complex and I I feel like it's long been determined that all we that we need exposure and experience with informational text. I think we can all take that for granted. The next steps are figuring out what is this process because it's different in different genres, right? And there are things that are genre specific. And then we want to think about um, moving beyond just exposure and experience. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing that I I think is important, and we've kind of circled around it is thinking about authentic purposes and audiences. Mm -hmm. um, that's one thing that I feel like really helps students and teachers, because generally, who are they reading and writing for their teachers, students are reading and writing for teachers. So we need to move beyond that. And there are some a few research studies that are looking into informational texts for authentic purposes and audiences and the differences that it makes um, reading and writing. And so I think that's another component um, that we need to further explore. Thank you. <clears throat> So you've already kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, our primary audience for this podcast are graduate researchers, um, typically people who are working towards completing a dissertation. Um, and what would you like to say to researchers who are now coming into this space and taking up the work in the area of literacy interventions or curriculum development or materials um, or just exposure to informational text in the classroom or any of the plethora of ecological components that are really you know, impacting even beyond the classroom. Mm -hmm. Is there anything um, that you would like to share with our our people coming into this space now? Yeah, we did a lot of work with looking at how we could potentially find added value in other aspects of um, other things that could be added to reading comprehension instruction. So if reading comprehension instruction around nonfiction text was the base, what else do we have to do? Because we know we're just not moving the needle fast enough, far enough with what we're currently doing with our best practices. So we need to know more. Um, and so we looked at, and we know that attention and working memory and other domains of executive function are closely tied and correlated with 
uh, reading comprehension, of course, um, that the link is extremely clear in the research. However, what isn't clear is which direction that goes per se. Um, is one infecting the other? Are they both impacting each other? Is it bi-directional? Exactly what's going on there? And is it possible to move reading comprehension by moving one of those other levers? Like with self-regulation support, with transfer, uh, with working memory, with support for attention, um, can we move reading comprehension to a greater degree? Um, we, um, in most of our studies, we had a, like three experimental groups, a, a business as usual control, our standard treatment protocol. And then we had um, usually an added, so it was working memory training for a few years. It was uh, self-regulation and transfer support for a few years. Um, and the effects were interesting. Um, they were certainly something to think about. Um, but they were really an initial volley at, at the very best is what I would give them. Um, and so what I would say is there, there's a lot to be learned. And I don't even think that that's all. I think there's so many components because comprehension is so multifaceted. Um, the direction that we take to get into it in terms of what to do when it goes off the rails and how to assess and how to um, determine it, that all of that is extremely interesting and how how do we move move the needle in in those ways and i think there's a lot of ground to cover because we're not getting there yet with what we're doing as our standard practice like what's in things like the ies recommendations they have the these k3 recommendations that really echo everything that's recommended anywhere else and what i found was year on and year out what we did for fourth and fifth graders didn't work for third graders hard stop and I did a meta-analysis of that, totally backs that up. What we do for fourth and fifth grade does not work the same for third grade students. And I imagine it does not work the same for second, first, and kindergarten as well. Um, and I think that we have to accept the fact that there are unique components of our cognitive skills that come online at different times in our development when it comes to comprehension, and that has implications for instruction. Um, and so... I think it's it's really fascinating to figure that out. I, I'm obsessed with third grade specifically <laughs> because I feel like it's like this puberty of reading development, not to be awkward, <laughs> but it's just this really interesting moment when we move from learning to read to reading to learn somewhere during that year, most of us. Um, and what happens when that doesn't happen, when the transition doesn't occur and what do we do? Um, and so I'm fascinated by that, but there are as many interesting things to discover when it comes to sixth grade reading or ninth grade reading or adult comprehension instruction. Um, I just think that one size fits all when it comes to comprehension instruction will never be the answer because it's too big of a domain. It's too multifaceted. And so I encourage, I think the field would benefit from us all taking different in route inroads, you know, like, because we're going to find it. And so I love hearing about different ways that different people are going about it. Um, anything that's taking us from just the traditional path and moving us to anything else, I think is really interesting. So when I saw this question before we started today, I kind of interpreted it as what advice would you give to grad students? So sort of related to informational text, but also mostly not. Um, my, my answer was um, kind of specific to my own experience, but it, it was the recommendation that grad students 
really work hard to link their work to an ongoing tradition in the field and to questions that other people are asking. So I mentioned at the beginning that I came to informational text because I was trying to study text difficulty. No one is doing that. No one cares about publishing that. No one is interested in that question. And that question, like it worked for a dissertation and my dissertation is now finished and I published some things out of it, but it was not easy because no one is interested in that question. And so I think there are bigger, more important questions that I would encourage people to ask instead um, and questions that link to things that more established researchers have been working on. So just kind of professional advice is don't ask an idiosyncratic question that you're the only person who cares about. That's excellent <laughs> advice. <laughs> that is very good. <laughs> and I know you were an excellent grad student, so um, <laughs> um, I I think for me, uh, I've talked about a couple of these things. We need to, um, but I but I also I think in our conversation, it's got me thinking like we all have kind of like a special favorite area related to informational text. And I think like Laura's saying, well, and Megan too, like you need to capitalize on that. Um, you know, if that's what you're interested in, uh, try and see what's been done with informational text with that and how you can build and, and contribute to the field in that way. Um, I know for me, I think uh, writing is something that we don't have as much research um, related to informational text and writing informational text, but it sure is on our assessments um, that we require students to do. Um, and so thinking about um, scaffolding, learning and development related to um, informational text and writing, um, I think that also thinking about um, how we can take advantage of technology related to informational texts. If a video is gonna be the best way to learn about gravity, how can we take advantage of that when we're studying informational texts? Um, and I also think uh, thinking about, uh, a lot of my work looks at how context influences literacy learning. So I'm thinking about culturally informed, um, informational text pedagogy and practice and learning. Um, and then just how we can better, we've talked about this, I think kind of throughout, connect teachers and practice in all contexts. Um, we're living in a time when there are a lot of programs and they have an informational text component. Um, and thinking of allowing teachers to develop the knowledge base and the dispositions to, to make those choices for their students on what their students need related to informational texts. Um, so I would just encourage grad students to think about, you know, what is it that is really um, catching your attention and how does that relate to informational text um, and, and going from there? I think is really key because like we've all experienced, there's nobody there to 
push you along every step of the way. And you have to be the one that's motivated. And sometimes you are sitting there analyzing data, thinking like, I'm the only person that cares about this in the whole world. But, um, but it's not true. Then we come to conversations like this and we're like, oh, there are other people that care. (laughs) But, um, but you need to have that connection to it. Um, I think is an important takeaway. And I think Laura, to your point, like, I think there, there is interest. I do think I got some good advice that focus on your quantitative methods, like focus on your methodology while you're going through your grad program, because that you will learn it best there where, you know, whatever you're doing, like take advantage of that methodology and learning how to investigate. Um, and within the world of comprehension, um, it can be a little demoralizing because the effect sizes are a little smaller. Um, statistical significance is harder to obtain. Um, and sometimes I think it can be a little demoralizing, but what I discovered through my meta-analysis um, and then comparing my own like studies and like looking at the broader what was out there and realizing that every step forward is important that we take. And it's so important to um, kind of counteract uh, the feelings that our effect sizes should be the same as what people found in the eighties or mm-hmm. should be the same. The other half of my lab was doing math research, which is fantastic and amazing. And I love, but the effect sizes they were getting holy buckets, like 3.3s, like out of the, I mean, what? Ooh, how? <laughs> and over here, we're like jumping up and down for a 0.25, like, you know, like, yeah, we did it. So I just think this, the field, um, can feel a little bit like, oh my goodness, that's not as important as something else over here, but it, it is important because there's this huge gap in our research and there's a huge need in this area. And I think the test scores in our country show it. I think, I know I had students that absolutely needed the interventions and they needed this work. And I, regret every hour of every day that I didn't have the tools then that I have now to support them. Um, and I won't stop till I make sure other teachers don't have that, you know, don't go through that experience. And we look at the world around us and I see a world that doesn't know how to take information from nonfiction and informational text and how to make connections and develop cohesive text models. And so we, we must do better. And so I would encourage you when you're looking at your dissertation to not get lost in the world of what somebody did in the seventies and eighties, but to really, truly, um, focus on your methodology, focus on doing good, um, good research. And, um, in that, like, if your methods are strong, you will, you know, push through. So that, that would be my encouragement in your grad program is connect to work that's being done, find the experts, go to the conferences where the experts are so that you can connect with them and learn from them, read their work, get in their work, and then get deep in the methods of your own particular practice, you know, wherever you are. And then I would add on a couple of things to that. Um, One is that a lot of people working in informational text are using qualitative methods. And so get good at those two while you're in grad school, um, because they also are complex and easier to learn with support than on your own. Um, So that's another opportunity not to miss while you have mentored support. Um, And then I was also reflecting, I was just at the 
Literacy Research Association conference. And I was surprised that in the program, there was, I searched the word misinformation and disinformation, which are obviously really big social issues right now. And they only showed up one time in the program. It feels like somebody should be studying that. <laughs> Um, and I know, I know people are, and maybe they just like go to different conferences, but it, it feels like literacy researchers should be studying that. And what is informational text and what is masquerading as informational text and how can you tell? Um, and so it seems like that is an opportunity for, um, new researchers who are casting about for something to do. And then one other recommendation that also, relates to informational text that I thought of while I was listening to the other two of you. Um, I think that more literacy researchers who engage in classroom practices or who study classroom practices and work in teacher education should also engage with policy. And we've hinted at different places in this conversation about where we would like to see certain things happening in curriculum and policy. And we feel frustrated that they don't happen, but policies exist because people make them and people can change them. They're not these, they, they feel like these big immutable structures that nobody can change, but they aren't. And it's important for the people who know the most about a topic to figure out how to engage in policy in ways that are effective. So like, we know that there were studies about the paucity of informational text in classrooms, and then the Common Core came along and recommended a lot more informational text. So there's an example of a thing happened in research and then policy changed. But subsequently, lots more policies need to be put in place or lots more programs and curriculums need to be put in place to make that work well for students and teachers. And so I, I think that sometimes you have like the policy people who are by themselves as policy people and they go to their own conferences and they write in their own journals. And then the classroom people are over here at their own conferences and writing in their own journals. And there should be more crosstalk. And the people who are the subject matter experts in literacy should figure out how to engage policymakers or become policymakers or influence policymakers or contribute to public discourse about what should happen in classrooms. And we should do a little less fighting amongst ourselves. <laughs> I think too, I, I personally think that there's room at the table for both qualitative and quantitative methods. And I love both things. And so I, I hope that we can get to a place where there isn't such a hard line between the two fields of coming to this, you know, because I do think we share so many similarities. Um, and so I think we, to advance our policy goals, I think that we share, which is to make better readers in this world, um, that we have to be on the same team. So that's, I, I appreciated you kind of like pulling out, like I wasn't specifically saying quantitative, uh, methods only, um, but, that there's a need for us to all be good at our methodology and then to work really together because we need both both sides of the coin, I think, if we're going to move policymakers' hearts. Yeah, and I think um, you've both touched on just taking advantage of the opportunity to think and chat and problem solve with the people around you 
even if you aren't studying exactly the same thing, um, just that process of being able to do that, I think is something to take advantage of. And um, I know like in my work, I received a lot of amazing mentoring, not only from my mentor um, who set me on the course for informational text um, with her work, but also from other um, students and other faculty members, but just taking advantage of that time to think and talk and chat and problem solve about um, with, with other people, smart people. Um, you might not feel like you are, but you're smart. Um, and, and what you have to bring, um, I think is important. Um, but I also agree, I think it's great Laura, that we're also, we need to not only just do the research, but think about how we can advocate for students and teachers um, related to this work. Um, so how we can make space for them and support them, I think is really important and how we can act and not just passively look at data. <laughs> so and focus on the practice, like focus on how this matters on the ground. Like if it can't work in a school setting, if there aren't, if it's not possible to do this, then it's not possible to do, right? Like, so our, our focus has to always be in the classroom. How do we build this? How do we, <laughs> how do we get this thing to work? And if it doesn't work, then it, then it, then it's just esoteric. It's just, you know, activity in our heads. And so being realistic about, okay, what are the real needs on the ground and what teachers need and what schools need and what, what students need? Well, as a dissertating candidate with imposter syndrome, very focused on informational text and potentially have selected a topic that no one else cares about <laughs> in terms of informational text, this has been an extremely enlightening and also confirming um, discussion amongst the three of you that... Um, I think it's important that the work you're doing is important. I think the way we've all come into what we're doing is really valuable. And it just goes to show that there, what needs to happen and where we've come from and where we're going, there are so many moving pieces and it's gonna take a village. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'm really hoping that um, people listening to this um, really take it to heart the calls that we have for what we need. Um, for children, because it's really about, it's about the kids. Um, and so I'm, I'm just so grateful for your time today. And, um, this has been an, an amazing learning experience for me. Some, and keep going, Leslie, like, seriously, yes. the world needs more researchers. If anything else, they're like the, the, retirement situation out, you know, within academia and then in the schools, we absolutely need uh, more and more and more. So keep going. You've got this. <laughs> You're going to get it. You're going to get it. And whatever you do will be brilliant. So thank you for the invitation. It was, yes. Yeah. Thank you for accepting. And this has been, this has been really great. So I really appreciate your time and um, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you.